You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. All right. Well, good morning. It's good to be back here with you again today. Uh, in the interest of time, seeing as we had plenty to go last week that we didn't get to, I want to make sure we uh, are able to get clipping here pretty quickly. So let's go ahead and pray and open up. Father, we thank you that you draw us together as your family, united by the blood of Christ, that as we sit in this room and worship later, we will do so because you have called us to praise your name. We thank you for your grace and for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray that we would honor you through our time and give you excellent worship. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so to uh, pick up briefly, last week we were talking uh, in the beginning of this series about um, kind of our situational awareness, where we are today, what we need to know about what we assume and bring to the table and how we read scripture, uh, sometimes in a way that wants to skip over things that are out of touch with our current context or things that make us uncomfortable, things that are just out of the ordinary. We are happy to spend lots of good time digging into the doctrines of grace, which we ought to, but that's not the only picture that we see in the Bible. Uh, I had mentioned that I last week forgot to bring my stack of books. So here's some that are pertinent for what we've talked about thus far and what we'll talk about today a little bit more. Um, If there's any one volume that I'd recommend you picking up yourself and just enjoying. It's one of the most pastoral books on this subject I've read. It's called Satan Cast Out by Frederick Leahy. He was a a reformed Irish pastor from the 60s and 70s who had a good friend of his who was a a third world missionary who routinely was telling him, hey, I'm back on furlough and I've I've really dealt with some things that I can't explain and that have been troubling to me from a, a supernatural perspective. And Leahy, like perhaps many of us, first few reactions are going, are you you sure that's really what you saw? Like, that sounds a bit odd. Uh, But eventually, this friend of his was very compelling, and so he realized, I need to take this subject very seriously, and wrote this book. It is great. It is subtitled A Study in Biblical Demonology. So here's what we're doing anyway. Uh, But this is great, easy to read, again, highly pastoral, and it's just rooted in Scripture. We're just trying to figure out what is actually there. So I'm going to pass this around and I'll you know, grab these at the end. I had mentioned also C.S. Lewis, The Discarded Image, last week. This was his book on kind of figuring out how to better understand medieval and Renaissance literature and worldview, which definitely is the inheritor of the ancient worldview, which we're kind of going back to here and trying to suss out. So this is also excellent. You can pass that around. Um, we have the excellently named... Discourse on the Damned Art of Witchcraft, which, you know, I've enjoyed reading books like this all year in preparation here. This is William Perkins, who uh, was a 16th, 17th century Puritan minister. He was kind of one of the original Puritans, and he wrote an excellent, short, still accessible book. I mean, it's a Puritan author, so you got to squint a little bit to get the English, but it's very good. Um, and this is uh, really winsome, too. Again, all these books, especially the Puritans, they're, they're writing from the position of wanting to be pastors and shepherds of souls. They're not trying to be pedantic. They're not trying to talk down to anyone. They're saying, if this is affecting you, then I want to help you with it and give you the grace that comes from the gospel. So this is an excellent one, too. Um, finally, we have uh, Giants, 
Sons of the Gods. This is from Doug Van Dorn. He's a Reformed Baptist pastor out in Colorado. And this is him taking a very deeply exegetical look at pretty much anywhere the kind of physicality of supernatural evil has shown up, especially in the Old Testament. So mostly about giants, you know, these things we see all throughout the Old Testament. But he's trying, again, to root this as a pastoral document, too. So it's, it's scholarly, but it's not so above anybody's level. I think anybody can pick it up and enjoy it. And then I do have the Septuagint I mentioned last week, uh, simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we would have seen the apostles using. So I'm going to get in where we're going to talk ostensibly later this morning about our adversary, Satan. That is the focus of our second lesson. Uh, but we do have some catch-up to do from last week, so let's start there. So I was talking about um, that there are really three falls in Genesis 1 to 11. We think, obviously, about the fall of man in Genesis 3. That is where we unfortunately inherit our original sin and see the corruption of mankind. Uh, But there is more going on there than just the fall of man. In Genesis 6, we're starting to look at that passage where we see um, the two views, one being um, the, the covenant line of Seth intermarrying with the reprobate line of Cain and their offspring leading to the decadence of the world. That's what triggers the flood. Looking now instead at the supernatural view, we touched on this just a little bit last week, uh, but this again was the, the view of Jews, Christians, apostles, really everybody in the early church and the old Jewish history leading up to about the fifth century. This was a understanding that would have been held by all the gospel writers, uh, Jude and Peter reference this pretty directly in their epistles. Uh, Again, the Septuagint, which is just the Old Testament Hebrew, translated to Greek. This is what most of the early church writers would have been using themselves. This is obviously the English translation, so take that with a grain of salt. Um, But this this Septuagint reading of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is a bit more on the nose to what we were starting to unpack last week. And it happened when humans began to become numerous upon the earth And they had daughters, the angels of God, seeing the daughters of humans, that they were beautiful, took for themselves women of all whom they picked out. The Lord God said, my breath will certainly not reside in these humans for very long because they are flesh, but their days will be 120 years. Now, giants were upon the earth in those days. And after that, whenever the sons of God entered into the daughters of humans, they fathered children for themselves. Those were the giants who were from long ago, the people of renown. So we're talking the angels of God. We talked last week kind of about the sons of God. That's this phrase that in the other interpretation is taken to mean kind of the godly sons of Seth, even though the word there is not human. It's, it's not Adam for man. Um, here, there are this phrase, uh, Bene Elohim, many other places in Scripture referring to these same types of people. There's Job 2, uh, probably the most famous uh, that we would come to mind of kind of a divine council picture. It says God is there in the assembly with the sons of God. That's when Satan rolls up and says, hey, can I tempt Job? So there's kind of a, a council chamber where it's not just the Lord on his throne, but he's also arrayed with his sons, these other spiritual beings. That also comes up in Job 38, which is relating back to um, when he says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars of the sky sang and gave praise? And 
we're worship, worshiping the act of creation. So obviously, morning stars there. It's not just stars in the sky, but referring also to these sons of God. And that goes back to Genesis. Uh, Second Chronicles, we have an interesting scene when King Ahab, who was uh, among the worst of the worst in the northern kingdom, uh, was being judged, and he was trying to ally, I think it was with uh, Jehoshaphat, the southern kingdom. They were going to go to war, and all of his prophets, who were very corrupt, were saying, hey, you're going to go to war, you're going to have a great time, you're going to win, it's going to be great. We're going to, we're going to slam dunk on this war front. But then it, the camera kind of pans over to God again in his divine council, in his assembly with the sons of God with him, and he says, hey, what should we do with Ahab? Because we need to judge him somehow. Yahweh is not giving up his authority, but he's kind of, you know, uh, pulling the room. What, what do you guys think we should do? And there's another spirit, another one of these Bene Elohim who get up and say, I'll tell you what, I can get him because I'm going to have all of his prophets lie to him, but he'll buy it because he wants to only ever hear good news. And then it goes back to the actual narrative where you see just that happen. These 400 prophets are more or less being used by God's attache to delude him and have that providence pan out, much to Ahab's dismay. So there are many other instances here. We're not going to read all of them for the sake of time, but this concept, this category comes up a lot. We're going to unpack this maybe a little bit more next week. We're focusing primarily simply on angels and demons as categories. Um, but here's other instances where you'll see the translation, sons of God, morning stars, sun, moon, and stars, the host of heaven, and then later with, uh, as I mentioned, Jude and Peter, angels that sinned, angels that did not keep their first estate. So we're going to go from there, and I'm going to pause briefly for questions, and then we'll move on. See, everybody's tracking so far, but obviously that's a lot. So uh, that said, if not, I'll, I'll move on. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, Sue's question is, so are the sons of God simply other spirits or the other types of angels? That's what scripture seems to present, yes. That when it's used in this context, they are part of, I wouldn't necessarily say a hierarchy of angels, but types of beings that do God's will on his behalf. And as we saw with Satan, it's not as though they're all perfect. Some of them fall as well. And in the Genesis 6 narrative, we clearly see from this interpretation, those were fallen. They had abandoned their posts. They had rebelled against God, decided to pursue their own ends on earth. Okay. So moving on then to the third fall. So we have the fall of man, we have the fall of angels, then we have the fall of nations. This is arguably the most redemptive historical moment out of this section. So Genesis 10 gives us the table of nations, the genealogy of the 70 nations which are established after the flood and before the events of Babel in Genesis 11. Well, the genealogy is straightforward. There is a narrative interlude for one character, Nimrod, who is described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. So we know from Hebrew literature they don't have exclamation points in the Hebrew language. They use different means to draw emphasis to importance. Genealogy is one of them. We want to establish that if someone shows up, how did they get there? The more people who are behind them, the more emphasis we're putting on them. This is bringing everybody up to speed to Babel. More so, if there happens to be this little side story in the middle of the genealogy, we're also putting a lot of emphasis on that figure. So here's Nimrod, described as a mighty hunter, 
And that word, that phrase, is from the Hebrew that's very similar to Nephilim, which is where like those giants or the, the, the product of heaven and earth together in Genesis 6 comes out. It's the word gibberim, which means great, mighty, men of renown. And there aren't a lot of instances where this shows up in the Old Testament, but they tend to be synonymous, Nephilim, gibberim. We have the gibberim, the mighty men who were in Jericho before God destroyed the city. We see uh, Caleb in the conquest of Canaan later when he goes to uh, conquer Hebron. There are the three sons of Anak who are the mighty men, the giants of their father, and then he slays them and conquers Hebron in the conquest of the, the promised land. So that it shows up there as well. So if we, if we put these terms together and think about it a bit, then we see that Nimrod is probably not a great guy if he is borrowing from the language to describe him from this same heritage. So before the Lord can also be understood as against the Lord. He's, up a, he's before the Lord to stop him, suggesting antipathy rather than worship. And obviously, we see that one of the kingdoms that Nimrod establishes is Babel, and that was not a pleasant moment in human history. So if he's the author of that city, we don't think he's our friend. Genesis 11.4, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Even that, a name for ourselves, is that Gibor language. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Of course, the irony there is they don't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth, and that's precisely what God decides to do in judgment. So in short, we have here at Babel, this plan spearheaded by Nimrod, this culture builder, was not to spread over the earth, as God commanded, not to go multiply and be fruitful, but to congregate in one spot and to say, we're going to do what we're going to do, and in fact, elevate themselves to their own kind of new holy mountain in this tower. It was not a good idea. As we know, God scatters the people, confusing their language, and establishing these 70 nations. There was one nation, and then he broke it up, and that's where they come from. So post-Babel, we have this new context, culturally speaking. So, to wrap up these three falls, what's the point? Why are we talking about this? We look at Deuteronomy 32, and Deuteronomy is Moses commenting on the law and the history of Israel. It's basically his commentary on the Old Testament up to his point. Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9 is kind of our key text here. This is Moses talking. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when the, he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So Moses begins in Deuteronomy using this allotment or inheritance language very specifically. This doesn't show up in many other places, but he says it constantly here. As in he's saying, when God established these nations, dispersed the tongues at Babel, he is counting them according to these lesser workers, his staff team, let's say, these sons of God. He numbers them according there, sets one over each and says, you're the intermediary. You know, I think about um, if you have perhaps some extreme dysfunction in your family. There might be somebody that you've cut off. You don't talk to them anymore. They're not allowed to talk to you. 
they have to go through somebody else if you're going to send a message here. So we'll, we'll look here and think about how up to this point, Moses is, is trying to establish the picture of why, how do we get here? Why does, spiritually speaking, this context exist? So he's saying, uh, you know, ultimately here, he's giving these nations over to the subordination of other spiritual beings. You take care of them because they've consistently screwed up. Think about this. The pre-Abrahamic people were given three opportunities for faithfulness. We had Eden. That didn't go so well. We had the flood. That was a disaster. We had Babel. They did exactly the opposite of what they were told to do. God is basically saying here, and Moses' commentary is establishing, that in Yahweh looking over the nations at this point, he said, I've, I've worked with you patiently to elicit and improve covenant faithfulness, and you just can't hag it. So it's the next chapter in Genesis, in 12, when God calls Abram out of Ur and basically says, I'm going to change the way I'm working with people now, I will call a nation to myself instead of relying on other nations happening to worship me. So he calls Abram and says, Israel is going to be founded. They're going to be a different new project. The rest of the world, you guys blew it. Now there are these intermediaries who are going to say, they're going to take care of you because you have not respected me. You've not followed my commands, my law. So... Yahweh moves on to the next chapter, as I said, with the founding of his own nation. So we go further back in Deuteronomy, and this is where he's giving Moses talking more about the context that these nations were disobeying. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, he's speaking to Israel here, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. He's saying we're doing something different. All these people who wanted to worship anything but Yahweh, well, they get what they want, and that's not going to be a good deal for them. Israel, however, is going to be sanctified. So God allotted the pagan nations to sit under the sons of God, well, Israel was to be his chosen allotment. So I'm trying to establish here the way that Moses was commentating, there are other players here. They're infinitely subordinate to Yahweh. They're lowercase g, gods. We're not saying there's any competition here. It's his staff team. It's his, his attaches. He's saying, go, you take care of them now. So we go to Deuteronomy 17. This is more of Moses talking in the same vein. If there is found among you any within your towns, the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman, who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel." We obviously see, we can fast forward out of this context and look at ever since Moses himself leads the people to the borders of the promised land, and then later in generations past, Joshua conquers it. We have the tribes establishing themselves. We have the history of the judges. 
it's a, it's a constant roller coaster of worshiping Yahweh, worshiping anyone but Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh, worshiping anyone but Yahweh. Moses, there's nothing new under the sun for him. He's saying, we're always pining after these pretenders. These folks who, frankly, God set up for their good, but even then, didn't go well for them. We'll get through this slide, and I'll, I'll open it up. Just one second, Rob. So, again, he went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. So these are new entities or spirits, something that's brand new in some of the worship of these pagan nations. But then God is also saying, I did not give these to you for your worship. You should be worshiping me. So the presence of many gods, being those allotted sons of God who fell from grace, is not, or at least should not, be a problem for biblical theology. We have the categories here. Again, Yahweh is infinitely superior. He's the God of gods, the God among gods, the God over gods. He's not be, there's no contest here. The difference is that the subjects of worship, being people, we're the ones who are frail and feeble and prone to wander, as the, the hymn writer says. This is not polytheism at all. Many references to Yahweh, again, mention him as above. He's in this category, but so far outstripping them, no one competes. That's why later we see uh, some of the, the writers of the New Testament refer back and say, you know, you might as well be bowing down actually to a piece of wood, because that's what that is compared to the great God that we have. But the rest of the context here is suggesting it's not wood, but it's certainly nothing worth your worship through usurper. Uh, we can take a step back and look world pantheons and mythologies all over. If you really look at them, they're all telling the story of Genesis 1 through 11 with different language. Take out Yahweh, put in your favorite hero. Now it's a different mythology. Still doing the same tropes. There's still a great God. There's still subordination and dominion. There's still corruption of some sort of the people who worship wrongly. There's almost always a flood. There are like 500-plus flood myths in the world, and they all follow this pattern. A lot of times they set up shop after the flood, they build a tower, imagine that, and so on and so forth. And I think of revisionist history where you conquer a nation. If you want to be beloved by the people, you take their stories, move it around a little bit, and boom, now you're the king, and people love you. And that's what all the myths have always said. That's what's going on over and over and over again. But ultimately, the pretensions to dominion that these tales say are false. They're temporary. They're fleeting. The little bit of glory that might be enjoyed by these figures is as nothing. All right, I'm going to pause here because the conclusion to why we're talking about this and why it's so Christological is coming up here. So, Rob, do you still have a question? <laughs> No, the, so Rob's question is, is Nimrod one of these mediator figures? And, and no, I think Genesis 10 is trying to show that Nimrod is a human king. He's a human ruler, uh, but he is associated with the same sort of spiritual significance of being a mighty man of renown, this Giborim concept, which is usually linked with the Nephilim, these giants. As in, there's something probably spiritually sketchy going on with him, that he represents a, a, a claim to power that should not be his own. 
that leads to babble. Yeah, that's a great question. So Rob's asking if if the flood was supposed to wipe all these figures out, well, why do we keep seeing them afterwards? That is, these giants, these Nephilim, whatever you want to call them. And to be sure, the whatever was going on before the flood happened, I think, was a very different picture of what has been in more recent history since. Like, that was a, a supernatural age of some sort that is gone, that, or at least an intensity of, of focus there. So we have actual... If we're reading this the way that the ancients understood in their worldview, these sons of God are coming. They're kind of building culture themselves that is partially divine. After the flood, God says, no. I mean, this is why corruption runs so rampant that he says the thoughts of every man was evil, except for Noah's family. I mean, like that's a pretty bad ratio to be living in if you are one of eight people who are not totally given over to corruption. The world was poisoned by this event. God wipes that clean. But it also says the Nephilim were in that land then and also afterward. So even in the recording of Genesis 6, there's that phrase that says, also this kept happening. So that, I think, is left more to speculation. Perhaps it was more of the same. It's the same sons of God coming down out of order, but at a lesser degree. I think if they're supernatural beings, they would have seen what happened in the flood and go, that's a big risk to try that again. Maybe some did. Also, we'll talk later in this series about occultism and how a lot of that is tied to this ancient demonology that ultimately we are invoking, if this is spiritual darkness, there are other ways for that to interact with humanity, still probably in a very unseemly way, uh, but it may not be the one-to-one what's going on in Genesis 6. It could be more of a ritual or some sort of dark practice. Ultimately, we do see the, the great story in Joshua and through the rest of the Old Testament is these tribes of people who still resemble this older paradigm are being systematically routed and destroyed. You know, most of Joshua is saying, make sure that you make room for your people as Israel. There are also several instances where it says every last man, woman, and child needs to be destroyed here. It's, it's like a divine judgment that's being rendered at the edge of Joshua's sword. So where these giants show up, we always see the covenant community eradicating them on purpose. They're bad news. They represent fallen kingdoms, fallen enterprises. Anything else? Does that, does that work? <laughs> Any other questions? Or, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. When you're talking about No, no, that's a great question. Yeah, so the question is, when Yahweh is, is distributing these nations after Babel, as, as Moses says, he allots these sons of God to the nations, were they fallen at that point, or were they, you know, conducting good business but then fell later? So um, that seems to me, because I do agree, the language suggests that this is something that's done on purpose, not 
not to corrupt these nations, but to say, listen, you have a babysitter now, and it's, it's not me anymore. I believe that it makes sense from the text that that would have been, at least for the most part, a good arrangement. This is meant for the good of these nations. It's just Yahweh is not going to be taking care of them anymore. Um, but I also see, I think it comes, it comes as a, a punitive measure, because these are, the, these are the same nations that have screwed up over and over and over again. So probably not the greatest job posting for said son of God to have to babysit the Canaanites. That's a raw deal. And ultimately, later on, we, we have a lot of language of these beings took the worship that was due to Yahweh for themselves. So I, I wonder if, because of this, there was eventually this universal fall of these entities. They're okay figures who are taking care of corrupt, dark nations, they're going to take corruption unto themselves as well. So we certainly see the rest of Old Testament that these gods are bad news. They're not good. There's no one good but Yahweh by the close of the Old Testament. But there may have been a window where they were trying to bring up lawful goodness and virtue, but the people wouldn't have it. And so they all went sideways. Jonathan. Do you think that, that uh, the presence of these spirit beings uh, in pagan nations contributed to the development of their myths and their sort of their religions? So you're saying that their um, their spirituality, which ultimately was idolatrous, mm-hmm. was partly at least tied to the presence of the sons of God being uh, interacting with them. Whereas I've always I've always heard that their lowercase g gods are merely the wood. It's just merely nothing. Yeah. Um, but, but this kind of opens up the possibility that they were encountering some spiritual um, something mm-hmm. beyond just the natural world. Yeah, so Jonathan's question being, um, were these, was the, the, the darkness, spiritually speaking, that came out of these nations tied because of actual interaction with these figures? Or was it merely just they were already you know, rotten humans and they just carried on with these myths? Um, well, we see, I mean, think, think about most, most, all the ancient Near East kingdoms, they all said, our king is the son of the god of our nation. You know, we have Pharaoh as, as understood to be a divine figure. He's, he's, he's this picture of blending what is supernatural with what is flesh. Also, um, Moses' commentary here and, and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament is suggesting that there's a real interaction going on here. There's a real relationship. But then we do see there's also that ontological point. That is, what, what is the real matter here? These gods, lowercase g, are so tiny. They're created beings. They don't hold a candle to Yahweh. So by comparison, absolutely, it's just a rock. Who cares? Um, But the difference is that we also have to not be chronological snobs about this and look back at these silly old dumb pagan people like, oh, they they were so stupid they worshipped a rock. I think we can give them a little more credit to understand they probably had a real interaction, a real worship, a real religion going on here. But it was false. And again, with the the whole myth-making, these are the figures who are saying, let's take Yahweh out of the top and put my name in here instead. And now, see, the story was about me all along. So that's why we have culture heroes that worship me, because I'm your god now. But it is a pretending enterprise. Yes? So uh, how does this concept work in the, I guess you would say, the post-Christ era, like after Christ came, God resurrected, descended, and the covenant was opened up to the next house. Mm-hmm. So it was no longer just the Israelites, it was now... Uh, the covenant was open to all people. So, are I guess you say, are the sons of God still working over nations, or um, like taking care of certain nations, but not 
All right, so Grace's question is, because of Christ's work, do the sons of God, do they do this anymore in the world? And thank you, Grace, for the perfect segue, because that's exactly where we're going here. <laughs> so, finally and most importantly, Deuteronomy 32.9 shows that God gave Jacob as the inheritance of the Lord, or more specifically, his highest son. Fathers give inheritance to their sons. That's what's happening here. Yahweh gives the lesser, Bene Elohim, the sons of God, the godless nations of Babel. It's not a good deal for them. It's not a good deal for either party. However, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of God, receives Israel as his righteous inheritance. We go to Psalm 2, which is one of my favorite psalms, and I think really actually has so much to say about this context. So let's take a look at that. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, men, set themselves, and the rulers, not men, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. We don't want God ruling us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So we see this differentiation being made here. Here's the old way of the way things worked. But this is God with his own commentary to the psalmist talking about Christ becomes the inheritor of all these nations. And we'll see later, we're going to run out of time today to really get to it, but when we're looking at Satan's dominion or his claims to it over this earth, we see that God casts him out. He doesn't have the ability to deceive the nations any longer. But under this paradigm, up to this point, that was what was going on. He had power over not just individual hearts and temptation, but to delude whole nations, to keep them out of the covenant, to keep them away from the gospel. That power is broken with Christ. And the story of the New Testament is, is just restoration of all of these scattered nations to become the Gentiles who love the Lord as the Jews do. It's not for no reason that Satan, when tempting Christ, offers him the nations of the world. In the old ordering of the world post-Babel, the nations outside of Israel belonged to these lesser sons of God who became the pagan gods we see. In short, they were on Satan's payroll. However, and gloriously, Jesus Christ was set to inherit the nations through his death, resurrection, and ascension. This was planned before the foundations of the earth were laid, and the gospel call echoes from Genesis 3 through Deuteronomy 32 through the Psalms and the rest of Scripture. All nations, despite their idolatrous, pretender gods, will be taken into the church through Christ's perfect work. So as I said, we will certainly unpack this concept more, but the point of all of this is to say we had 
people whose faith failed over and over and over again. And God finally said, listen, if you really don't want to worship me, I'll set up something different for you. Not because it's good for you, but because it's what you've clearly been demanding. We see Paul himself points out, right, ultimately the worst discipline and judgment that God offers to those who sin is to let them keep sinning. It's the worst thing for a human heart is to sin and to love their sin. That is damnation. But even still, just in the same way that we fell in the garden and God said, you'll surely die, and then instead he had this whole paradigm of grace laid out through the work of Christ over time, even here we have people who turn their backs on God and his worship, and instead of destroying them outright, which was certainly his want, he decides, I will redeem them through Christ too, which is the irony by the time we get to the early church Many of the Jews are very upset that all of a sudden these Gentiles, who certainly weren't a part of the covenant, suddenly get a spot at the table. That doesn't seem fair. Well, it's not fair for the Jews either, but God's grace supersedes it all. Rob. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Rob's question is, did God know that things were going to go sideways over and over again? Was that part of his plan? Yes. God ordains all things, not by bare permission, but he makes these things happen. Now, I've thought about this question quite a bit, and we say, wouldn't it be better if we had never fallen? Wouldn't that be great? Well, sure, but that's not what God decided was for our best. To fall and be redeemed is infinitely more beautiful and rich and powerful than simply to sit in Eden and raise our hands to the Lord without interruption. That's what he decided was best. And again, he's a God of liberty and freedom. As as much as he ordains all things, he holds us accountable for what we do and we choose. And that's a beautiful thing. We are not automatons, nor are we walking through blind nonsense in our lives. God ordains what happens, and also we are equipped to have agency. So yes, as much as God knew and ordained that these nations would fall, so it's on them because they decided themselves, we don't want Yahweh, even though he's the one true God. We'd rather have Molech or Baal or Asherah. And that was a pretty raw deal for all three of them, including Molech, Baal, and Asherah because they inherited a bunch of rotten sinners who don't like God. So it was a pretty bum deal all the way across. However, God ultimately says, I know what I'm doing, And I have even, you know, we talk about the covenant of redemption that predates even the creation of the world. This is the three parts of the Godhead covenanting together to redeem a people who has not yet even drawn breath because it was ordained they would fall. Jesus Christ is here through all parts of it. And that's ultimately the the, the punchline for this uh, distribution, this allotment of the nations, so that they too we'll see ultimately they must turn to the gospel. And eventually they will have the opportunity to do so in mass. And thankfully we also see a few vignettes in the Old Testament before this is completed in Christ where the Gentiles are still invited in. We just were going through Jonah, right? Preaching to the Ninevites. They were the wretched Assyrians, the absolute haters of the covenant community. And God says, I wanna save them. Jonah was not very happy about that. Because, again, he was an entitled Jew. However, in the context of the grand scheme of things, their Gentiles who are going to come in too are Ruth, who comes out of Moab. She rejects her own pagan background. Moab was not a spiritually nice place. 
she ends up becoming you know, part of the line of Christ himself. So we see foreshadowing and glimmers here. God is very gracious to help us see how this works. Any other questions? Jonathan. Uh, one other point. I think this puts it into a new perspective when someone says, that, well, it wasn't very fair that God just picked Israel and then he gives the explanation for themselves. This whole period between Adam and Abraham uh, shines light on the fact that all mankind, what, what Romans 1 says is true, that we have all perceived the power and attributes of God, that we have rejected them even before we've been offered the gospel, whether as an Israelite or uh, hearing about Christ directly. We all stand condemned universally. Yeah, excellent point that we, we tend to gloss over everything that does happen before the calling of Abram and the establishment of Israel. But God was reaching out to those people from Adam onward saying, come and be a part of my covenant community. And again, they had multiple whole, who knows really, you know, what, what's going on here during this. We're, we're given what we're given in scripture. We, we don't need to idly speculate about what, what else is going on, but there's a lot of time and space and history that transgressed, or pardon me, that, that happened since the creation. And we have many moments here, these milestones where God is tired of it. He's, he's done with the rebellion of his people. And ultimately he says, okay, I'm going to do it myself then and found Israel. But all those who came before, yes, had the opportunity to love and call on the name of the Lord. They didn't. Some certainly did. There was always a faithful remnant, but they had to be rebooted a few times uh, because the rest of them didn't desire the true and rightly ordered worship of Yahweh. So we have about five minutes. Um, I haven't yet started today's lesson, (laughs) but we've certainly hinted at it in great detail. So I think it may be best to simply have that time there. But this is very, very important preamble to this whole conversation about spiritual warfare today, about supernaturalism across the world over time, and about demonology. And next week, uh, we'll talk specifically about our adversary, Satan, and his specific influence here, who he is, where he came from, why he fell. Those are important questions that have to do with our salvation specifically because we are in this context overall. So we'll take a few minutes then and say any other questions over what we've covered last week and this week or stuff related to it. Yeah. Uh, so it was my understanding that Satan fell obviously before humans because he was tempting Adam against God. And it seems like some of the sons of God continue to fall. Like, is it still possible that sons of God or the angel or whatever we would consider them to be would still have the potential to fall even now? Or was there some point in history where something happened and now it's kind of like there was a line drawn in the sand? Sure. And if you answered that, then I missed it. <laughs> no, so it's a good question. Is you know, we, we see perhaps these kind of perpetual or sequential falls of spiritual beings to corruption over time, at least in the Old Testament. Does that still happen today? I would say we we have no reason to think it doesn't. However, I would argue that if you've been a part of, you know, kind of the spiritual kingdom of darkness for however many thousands of years, watching the events of history plan out and seeing, ironically, despite your best efforts to tempt and corrupt and draw worship for yourself, God keeps redeeming his people and giving grace where they don't deserve it, By the time you get to the fact that Satan and the rest of his cohort assumed we finally won by killing Christ, 
and that moment is actually their death knell that they cannot come back from. I have, a, I mean, as much as we're, we're fools in our sin, I have a harder time thinking if you are now an angel who's still kind of wondering whether I should fall or not, but he saw Christ die, come back to life, ascend, and cast Satan out of the world, I'd say you're probably not going to do it. I think at that point, if there is still agency for that sort of corruption, you've got a front row seat to God saying, it's not going to pan out for you very well. At this point, we have the, the God-man who is standing here as the conqueror king of the righteous, and you get to go against him if you decide to bail. So maybe. I don't know. I don't think we have a clear answer there, but I would say it wouldn't make a lot of sense to me. Yes, Jim? Great point, Jim. So, so I think that the capability of a fall, I've probably said this very well, but the capability of is still in there because we refuse to believe. We, we, are, we are shown the truth. And even people who saw the resurrected Christ mm-hmm. did not believe. Yeah. So I think the, the temptation for us to not believe is still so very strong. Very much so. So Jim's point, as a counter to my own, is to simply say, even we see, you know, those who have have died and have, you know, the desire to say, I, I, I want my kin to have a have a better shot here, even if they saw someone rise from the dead, even if they heard the gospel, even if however many factors, they are still inclined to their own corruption because that is where we and and I guess maybe the only thing that I would offer there, Jim, is that we do know spiritual beings and humans are different categories of of created beings. And we see there is no opportunity for redemption for those who fall in heaven, whereas we are very graciously given an opportunity for redemption here on earth. You know, there there is no leeway there. There's elect angels and those who are out. There's no no missionaries to the angels as were ever seen in, in scripture. However, our influence, perhaps, you know, they look, they are keen to look into what we do, Perhaps our influence there does, does color their opinion. But again, we, we, can, we can speculate here. There's some things that simply God chooses not to give us a, a clear, hard, and fast answer. And we have to say, okay, we'll take what we have. I think with the children now bustling up here, it is officially 1045. So let's close in prayer. Oh, pardon me. Yes, uh, Deacon Sirico has an announcement. He'll do that, then I'll pray, and we'll get out of here. But um, there are two humans, so we're communicating to 
the congregation, on our missionaries, we support a man, Sean Martin, we're we're partners, so I'm sure most of you don't know him, Um, but he's going to be here in person, and he's going to be our keynote speaker, so we're excited about that. Um, He's a regional director uh, to Europe and the Caribbean, he uh, equips indigenous pastors for gospel ministry. So we've supported him for the last two years financially. So we're excited to bring him in. And it's a fun night, dessert auction, spaghetti dinner, starts at 5.30. So we encourage you to come and support the church. And to hear, uh, Sean, you know, we send out emails and uh, John Lambert's going in the classrooms to talk about this year. He's going to be here in person. So you can make it. Thank you. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your glorious grace and for your tremendous understanding of the way the world works, that you have ordained and foreknew and foresaw all these things, that while we in our finitude do not fully appreciate just how incredible the plan of grace and redemption are, Nevertheless, Father, you have laid that out in time and have realized it through and through. Thank you that we have the opportunity to consider your word without fear of reprisal. And we pray that as we move on to corporate worship now, we will do so to render excellent praise to your glorious name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.